Ace of Cups, An Elvis Weekend by Allison F.J. O'Connor Corb, M.A., and Stephanie A. Callis, TCB. I'm beginning to live my life again, and it's largely thanks to Elvis. Well, Elvis and Dad. And me too, I guess. I'm the one living my life. Here, I'll start over. I love starting over. I'm beginning to live my life again, and it's thanks to Elvis, Dad, and me. Someday you'll read more about it. A 33-page unfinished draft taunts me day and night, and 33, in recent years, has become an important number. I was 33 when we went into lockdown, and Elvis was 33 when he made a powerful but fleeting comeback. I thought I'd reclaim 33 by lying about my age, subtracting two stolen plague years from now until the end. This has nothing to do with shame and everything to do with fairness. It's not fair 2020 was taken away weeks after a fresh haircut. It's not fair the bug hit in my early 30s when I was widely considered still young. Now, just as I'm tiptoeing out of the darkness, I officially look good for my age. I sound like I'm talking about vanity, but I'm not. I'm talking about time. Vanity schmanity. It's not fair that we're all gonna die. We're all gonna die was on my brain one afternoon in June when I walked my stoned ass into a screening of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. You remember that day. The day the Supreme Court declared war on reproductive health care in the same week it broadened access to guns. Merely one month earlier, a man entered an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, where he used legally purchased rifles to murder 19 students and two teachers. Scotus's follow-up message was clear. Fuck you all. God, hurry up and bless America. America, hurry up and find God. America, I've given you all and now I'm nothing. God help me. I'm quoting Allen Ginsberg. America, this is quite serious. America, this is the impression I get from looking in the television set. America, is this correct? Everything changed that balmy afternoon in June, and the long story is detailed in the 33-page unfinished draft. Here's the short story. The goddamn Elvis movie helped me remember who I am. You'll read more about that someday. For now, trust that I'm aware of how depressed and immature I sound. We're all gonna die! A movie saved my life! Think whatever you want. I just need to write everything down. I've wasted enough time worrying if I'm being perfectly understood. Now, I'm letting go of that fantasy to hold tighter to what's sacred. Family, friendship, music, laughter, food, love, time. Also, kissing. Also, men who wear eye makeup. Also, Elvis. I can't believe I love Elvis. Talk about misogyny. Talk about access to guns. Am I having a spiritual awakening? Or am I enamored of an asshole? To some, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is Wikipedia with a pompadour. And during my first few viewings, I sort of felt the same way. However, as my interest became an obsession, my obsession led to an understanding. Elvis, for all its imperfections, 
is as rich as breakfast at Graceland. As a feminist lefty, I'm uncomfortable knowing the accuracy of Elvis's story is lost. But as a romantic, who's always thinking, I also love what the story has gained. Baz Luhrmann understands that Elvis is whatever we need him to be. Even when Elvis was a shy 19-year-old who sang because it felt good, people around him, supporters and detractors, willingly made him a myth. One hell of a myth. The Elvis myth is historical, psychological, and ideological. It's a creation myth, a religious myth, and a journey through the underworld. In Baz Luhrmann's telling, Elvis opens his mouth and gives us the gift of rock and roll, then shakes his legendary hips and gives us the gift of desire. He shows us what we want, and we discover what is holy. Here I am, worship me, free yourself. Elvis, both the movie and the problematic dead fave, awakens me to a truth I've unsuccessfully ignored for too long. With whatever time I have left, I want to make art and look hot. The straw that breaks the camel's back isn't necessarily heavy. It's just another straw on top of many goddamn straws. On a Saturday in August, I sat in my parents' kitchen crying about an incident at work. Originally, I stopped by to say hello, and to show off the Elvis memorabilia I scored that morning at a yard sale. Once I saw my parents, however, I couldn't help but blubber. My mother wrapped her arms around me as I fell apart at the table, my father looking toward us as he stood a few feet away. He was quiet for a second, and then he told me to quit my job. More specifically, he said, Think about if you want to line something else up before you leave. Of course I need to line something else up. I don't have any money. He reminded me that wasn't true. I had money saved, and apparently I could ask for help. We are so proud of you, he said. Until that moment, I didn't realize that was something I needed to hear. What will I even do if I quit before I find a new job? Take a month off, he said. Take two months off. Take back some of your time. Reader, I quit my job. I got tan. I read books. I saw Elvis. I stopped watching TV and started taking hikes. I wrote for hours every night until I had a 33-page unfinished draft. I didn't make any money, but I didn't feel like a failure. For the first time in almost a decade, I felt like my goddamn self. Myself is better than a capitalist fantasy. She's a person who digs being alive. In October, I drove to Berkeley to visit my friend Allison. She's been hearing about my Elvis obsession for ages, and after finally watching the movie, she started her own unfinished draft. For four days, we babbled almost exclusively about the king, our conversations ranging from analytical to absurd. In what ways did all his major relationships reflect his relationship to control? What would he order at Buca di Beppo? What would he think of Two Girls, One Cup? We watched three Elvis movies from the 60s, Tickle Me, Blue Hawaii, and Live a Little, Love a Little. On the final night of my visit, we took turns reading our writing and screamed in each other's faces about how great it feels to make art. Finally, armed with peanut butter and banana sandwiches, we watched Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Around the 15-minute mark, as Elvis took the stage in his Pepto-Bismol-colored suit, 
Allison turned to me and said, What a comforting movie. Somehow, it's comforting for us to think of healing through the prism of Elvis, and our writing has kept us committed to individual artistic rebirths. Undergoing personal transformation in a time of collective trauma is a painful but necessary challenge that we somehow keep choosing to face. Plus, we're having fun. We're having so much fun. Weeks ago, as I was treating myself to tea at a cafe near my apartment, Allison sent me a live version of the Florence and the Machine song, Morning Elvis, duetted by Florence Welch and Ethel Kane. Listening through my headphones as I walked by Christmas lights in the dark, I felt unexpectedly validated by lyrics I'd heard dozens of times. I'll see you all with Elvis if I don't survive the night. It occurred to me that Allison and I are super plugged into that song. We're tired, shaky, but we're making sense of it all with Elvis. Perhaps the real Elvis would bristle at being analyzed by two ladies, but our Elvis, the Elvis we need him to be, wiggles happily in approval. We have plans for our unfinished drafts, and you'll hear more about those soon enough. For now, I'll hand the mic to Allison. My New Year's resolution in 2020 was to be less online. I had felt oversaturated and overwhelmed for years, and I longed for the day I could wake up without compulsively doom scrolling. I didn't have much to look forward to, as I had just been ejected out of grad school with no savings and no PhD prospects thanks to my abusive program and advisor. To make things worse, I worked a grueling job at the repository of the internet's memory, and both my job and the last years of the Trump's presidency were an onslaught of fascism and farce. I took a rare day off and drove myself to Butano State Park for my 30th birthday in January 2020, not wanting to spend such a milestone at work being yelled at by sovereign citizens. As I stood in the damp cathedral of trees, alone and shocked at our joint survival, I swore many oaths to myself. Live your short and insignificant life to the fullest. Do what you love and do it unapologetically. Be gentle with yourself. And above all, please unplug and reconnect with the things that make life worth living. Less than a year later, I watched fascists live stream an attempted coup on Twitter and Twitch. I had moved to a new house and gotten a different job between the rapture of Butano and reading tweets of cowering lawmakers in gas masks, but the intervening months had deepened my despair. The COVID-19 pandemic swept through the world and cost me my job and many millions of people their lives, and the first round of menial public health action to help the most vulnerable had become a political football. The trees I marveled at on my birthday would burn as fires ripped through the central coast a few months later, their ashes blocking the sun and making the air unbreathable for weeks on end. Everything that felt constant and for granted slowly dissolved around me and then suddenly vanished, and I could feel myself looking for something desperate to hold on to. 
The people joyfully broadcasting themselves committing a federal crime had found something. Though through algorithmic radicalization and bigoted narrativization of why they felt so insignificant and astray. After all, what is more electrifying than something edifying and maybe eternal to believe in, whether or not it has any basis in reality? I still haven't found my constant and ongoing crisis, but I have been given the gift of a trapdoor to escape it. And Stephanie gave me the figurative key between celebrity and civilian tombstones of Hollywood Forever Cemetery as she hummed to herself, we're caught in a trap. We can't walk out. I cannot describe how Baz Luhrmann's Elvis makes me feel, and the 30-page draft, countless fragmentary notes, and voice memos I am currently working through fail to encapsulate it, too. After our rainy hike through the cemetery discussing the Elvis trailer, Stephanie urged my boyfriend and me to watch it as soon as we got home, and we did. I spent the entire six-hour ride home between Southern and Northern California trying to describe the three-minute clip to my infinitely patient and soon equally eager sister, and still failing. Its framing is mythical, its imagery is phantasmagorical, and the tone is strangely urgent. We watch Elvis go from literal rags to riches as Tom Hanks, in an implacable accent, drawls about destiny and superheroics. Politics and tragedy shoot through Elvis's life like lightning, and he seems to know that his time is running out as he fails to answer the question, who are you? I have no natural affinity for Elvis or Baz's work, but I was obsessed with unspooling a series of connected questions. Why are we reviving Elvis now? And why are we doing it in this way? Why does this trailer and subsequent movie feel like a warning shot? Why is this relevant in all the wrong ways and representational in all the right ones? This project began as a joint watch of the movie, my first, Stephanie's 16th, and a series of discussions and passionate rants chewing on these various questions. Our joint insatiable obsession led to a wild week in October 2022, where Stephanie and I did a pseudo-residency at my house, jetting up and down the Pacific coastline and discussing Elvis, both man and legend, and our interpretations of his story over multiple double-scoop waffle cones. When we were debating which Elvis movie to watch as my introduction to his filmography, we were stuck on where to begin. Should we begin triumphant with Blue Hawaii in the downward slump of Tickle Me or the personal nadir of Live a Little, Love a Little? After multiple impasses and too much discussion, we decided to leave it up to chance. I ran to my room, grabbed my tarot deck, and shuffled as she and I assigned two suits and the major arcana to each movie. Stephanie did the honors and plucked the Ace of Cups, a, car a card of abundance, unlimited creative flow, new beginnings, and in our case, the cinematic car crash called Tickle Me. I am so excited to share with you what has poured out of both of us in this collaboration, our parallel but overlapping approaches to the same text, and our communal joy in the face of entropy. You'll be hearing from us again soon, but in the meantime, we hope that you'll join us. My sister, in true art professor form, challenged us to create a syllabus and guide for her viewing of Baz's Elvis, and to help her understand why we cared so intensely and why she should too. This is the result, a combination of primary sources and our specific approaches and research interests. It is not necessary for viewing the movie, but those who have used it have found it galvanizing. Please take the syllabus as a gift, an invitation, and an omen. Come along with Stephanie and me down this transformative journey, this rabbit hole, this unexpected cracking of the sociopolitical source code. Become obsessed, curious, or rightfully concerned. And get ready to see Elvis everywhere, a legend that is as inescapable as constellations shining down upon us. He is no longer a man in a jumpsuit. He is intellectual property, a tourist attraction, and the first amongst our pantheon of deified national celebrities. He lived the American dream on a global stage and both exploited and was exploited on his way to immortality. 
His story is banal, complicated, and frustratingly complex, just like every aspect of our current existence. He is not just a myth, he is our myth. Misunderstand him at your own peril. And there you have it. You can find our syllabus by visiting steph.substack.com and checking out the print version of this story. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy birthday, Elvis. 